continuing on in our series through 1 Samuel called Jesus is King. And for those of you who were not with us last week, we kicked it off with uh, a couple different characters that are going to soon disappear in the story, uh, Hannah and a priest, Eli. And Hannah was barren. She didn't have children, and she was getting picked on by um, her uh, sister wife, (laughs) essentially. And her sister wife was um, being mean to her, had kids herself, and was teasing her. And so Hannah came before God in the the tabernacle and prayed a a prayer of just submission and, and just begged God to give her a child, but also said, in response to this, I'll give him back to you in what we see as a Nazarite vow found in Numbers chapter 6, which is, um, well, we'll talk a little bit more tonight about that, but there are different aspects to that vow, but it was a short-term vow. And so tonight now we see after Samuel uh, was given to Hannah, so little baby Samuel was born, we see a break of at least a year or two between chapter 1, verse 20, and verse 21. So we pick it up in 21 tonight, and we're looking at our response to grace. So Hannah, given this little baby that she didn't deserve, that she couldn't have on her own, she couldn't earn it, uh, there's nothing she could do, given this baby from God, now she's got to respond. And we're going to see how she responds to this, and parallel for us uh, should be obvious, but if not, we want to make sure that it is, and that is the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that you and I are given grace from God. We're given mercy in that we deserve death because of our sins, um, and then we're given grace in that we can't get to heaven on our own, and Jesus gives us access to the Father. He gives us eternal life, and so In that, grace does something in our hearts. It does something in our souls. It it makes us want to sacrifice and to give back to God what he gave to us. So he gave us life eternally, and he says, I want it back. And so we see in Romans chapter 12, after 11 chapters of theology, of good news, just gospel preaching in the book of Romans, 11 chapters of it, Romans 12 kicks off by saying, in view of God's mercy... Now what are you going to do? You're going to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice that died for you. Your response, you are compelled by grace to offer your life back to him. Jesus tells us in Luke 14 that anybody who doesn't pick up their cross and follow him daily isn't worthy to be a disciple of his. So to pick up your cross means you got to deny your own, your own thoughts, your own desires, your own opinions, and, and you have to follow him. That's our cross to bear. And so that looks different for each one of us, but I want to make sure um, that we see the purpose of Christianity, that it's first about receiving something from God, and then second about giving something to him. And it's designed in such a way that you will have turmoil in your soul. Some of you maybe even come in here tonight with a little bit of this turmoil, that if you see the gift given from him, is not reflected in your life devoted back to him. Like if it's even 80%, you're like, I'm holding back a couple areas. Or there, there's an area of finances or, or just my own uh, ability to get out of my comfort zone and be in community with other believers or serving God. It could be a million different things, your kids, your family, whatever it is. But, you know, I'm, I'm holding back a little bit. I'm insecure. I don't want to give this over because it's going to cost me a lot creates all kinds of turmoil inside of us. So I want to make sure that we know tonight as we talk about devoting ourselves back to God, offering ourselves as living sacrifices, we're not talking about earning our own salvation. 
This isn't something to make God love us. And so if you're like, well, I'm at 90%. I give God most things, but not all things. Like uh, somehow you're falling short. This is about our response to the free gift that he gave us. And so we're going to see what grace does a little bit. Now, I could take this a couple different avenues. I could do uh, this one, which is, hey, you know what? Christians, you should know better by now. Do better, try harder, give everything to God. Just do it. Come on, you got to do it. Or I could go down this route. And this route is the one that I'm going to take. And it is a conviction that I have in the word of God that you don't have to convince people who have been given much to give much. They're like, if people really receive the gospel, okay, if people really get it, if, if God gets a hold of them and makes it known, you need me, you can't do this without me, and I'm giving my son for you, placing my spirit in you, you don't have to convince those folks to give their lives back to God. Now, it doesn't make it easy, always, but you don't have to convince those folks to sacrifice back to God. Little Silas, I love telling stories about him. He, um, he loves all of the gifts that we give him. He loves his toys. He loves uh, all of his fun um, toys in his room. He loves different foods like crackers. He's always asking for crackers. Goldfish, I don't know what is in goldfish crackers, but kids love them. It's, it's catnip for babies. Um, he loves his juice. He loves uh, just a variety of snacks. If I, gave him, if I gave him a little taste of a donut, whatever. Like, he loves all these things, and it makes him excited. But he's got one thing that is a favorite above all things, and that's cookies. And sometimes, just to mess with him, like, I'll shake it up and, and see, does he really love cookies? Because he, he says, he, I love cookies. He loves them. Uh, one day, he woke up, and he was, like, just groggy. He was just, you know, in his crib. He looks like a bear coming out of hibernation. It's like a 30-minute process every morning. I'm serious. And, and after the nap as well, but that's a whole other story. And I asked him as he was groggy, and he wouldn't even talk to me about anything. I said, Silas, what's your favorite food? And he said, cookies. Like, he, just, he loves cookies. But here's the thing. Tara and I have noticed that when it comes to crackers and some of these other gifts, these treats that he likes, if we give them to him and we ask if he'll share, his little two-year-old heart is selfish enough to generally always say, nope, or nope. And he just, he just, he, he just didn't want to give it to him. Tara and I will talk to him. We'll work with his heart. Like, what's going on in your heart, buddy? He just, he doesn't want to give him. But when it comes to his favorite food, cookies, you would think, okay, now it's going to be crazy selfish. But it's actually the opposite. And it's been weird for us to see this because he'll come to me and he'll say, Daddy, just a little cookie. Just a little cookie, Daddy. And so we'll, we'll give him a little cookie. But he doesn't run from me or hide it or try to eat it real quick and go away from me. He actually sits on the couch with me. And he'll lick on that little thing, and he'll treasure that little cookie. And, and I'll ask for the cookie from time to time. I'll say, can I have a little cookie? And he's like, yeah, Daddy. Like, he loves it so much that he actually shares it with me. It goes against human nature, in, in my opinion. And in the same way, that's what the gospel does. Each one of us has been given all kinds of gifts in this room. You live in America, you have gifts. Material blessings, you have spiritual blessings, you have things. But none of those things fill that hole in the soul. And anything that comes short actually creates a response of attachment because it doesn't give us all we need, and yet we don't know where to find all we need, so we hang on to it selfishly. And then you come across this beautiful gift that is the gospel. 
and we're so blown away by it, all we want to do is give our lives back to the Father and share it with him. And so as we walk through this tonight, I want you to analyze your own heart. And I know some of you, you hear sermons like this all the time. And, and so you mentally check out thinking, well, I don't know if this really applies to me. Check your heart tonight. Are you holding something back from God? Finances, service, your time, your energy, your heart, your kids, your job. Are you holding something back? And if so, how does that reflect what you've really received from him? What are you trusting in? So we're going to walk through this tonight. Kick it off in chapter 1, verse 21 through 24. If you've got a Bible, feel free to open it up. Just so you guys know, um, I preach out of the ESV. And uh, that might help some of you if you've wondered what translation. It says, keep in mind, a year or two has passed since verse 20. The man Elkanah, so that's Hannah's husband, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. So they went last year, and that's when Hannah prayed the prayer. Now it's time to go up again. The baby has come. Samuel is in her arms. Verse 22. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. See that, that time frame there? That's very crucial here. We're going to see in a second. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. Now, when we talk about weaning here in the Mideast, in this time frame, it was common um, for roughly three years. Okay, that's what weaning is. So th- we're talking about a three-year-old, and she's saying, I'll take him after that. We see that from some extra Jewish uh, writings. Uh, actually, it's called Second Maccabees, but... Anyway, well, that's a whole other story there. But it gives us insight into what, what it meant for them. Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bowl, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. All right. First thing we see is that grace gives more than expected. Grace gives more than expected. So you got to think, time has passed. Not only has time passed in that Samuel was born and now it's the next year, but she holds back again from going up and, and, and fulfilling her vow. She holds back again to raise him up. So several years have passed from the time she got pregnant to the time she's actually going to give the baby back to God. you got to wonder what's going on in her mind. Like, it, personally, for me, if God, if I ask God, if I beg God for something and he actually gave it to me, and you give me four years to ponder that thing and to become attached to that thing, chances of me giving that back, 50-50. Like, let's be honest. Like, that's going to be really, really difficult. Is she going to fulfill the vow? you got all kinds of things probably going on in her mind. You hear this often. I, I see um, churches that are dying, and, and they'll be calling out, we need, a, we need leadership, we need a pastor. We've dwindled from 100 to, to 50 to 30 to 20, and we've got to close the doors pretty soon. Um, and so we're trying to find a pastor. And, and so maybe 
six months go on, 12 months, a year or two, they don't have a pastor, and then they finally find someone who maybe is willing to, to jump in the boat with them. And in the interview stages, you see things like, we'll do whatever it takes, right? And they'll say things like, well, we, we want to be more outreach focused. We want to reach the next generation and all these different things. And then what happens? The pastor gets hired, and then you ask him six months later, hey, how are all those things they talked about changing? How's that going? And a lot of times that pastor just hangs his head you see, because when people's heads are going underwater and they're gasping for air, they'll say all kinds of things. But when the ship has been righted a little bit, all of a sudden, you do this number and say, well, I don't know that we need to do that much outreach. We're doing all right now. I don't, I don't know that we really need to change now. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people who are broken and hurting and, and they hear the gospel and they say they want this. And so I, I like anyone, lead them through uh, prayer and I say, okay, you, you, you can receive this. Like right now, tonight, you can receive this. And they're broken and they're telling you all their drama and all you can tell is just what they're giving you. Like you can't read hearts. And so then they walk through and they, they, they say, I want to give my life to you, God. And they'll do the sinner's prayer and all that jazz. And then you see as their circumstances change in a week or two or two months or six months, all of a sudden they're nowhere to be found. And you catch up with them and it's like that day never even happened. And you're thinking, what happened? Did, like, did, did you get saved or did, did anything register? It's unsure. So you give me four years to go away. <laughs> four years, this baby boy, it's going to be hard for me to come back and give it. So she doesn't barter. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't barter with God. She doesn't make excuses. She doesn't fight with God. She doesn't forget about it, but she prepares. She's got a way out. She tells her husband, hey, I'm going to just hang back for a little bit, and then I'll come back. And he's like, eh, if it seems right to you, yeah, raise him some more and then bring him on down. Like she's, she, could, she could put that off forever. And she doesn't. This is, this, is the, this is the purest form of receiving grace. That she receives grace, coming to the table saying, I'm barren and I want a child. And she basks in not only the grace, but the grace giver to the extent to where my heart isn't so much to keep this child now, even though it's what I asked for to begin with. It's to give and sacrifice joyfully to God. Like only grace takes selfish hearts and turns them into selfless hearts. Like that, that's, all, that's a work that only the God of the universe does in us. You see in verse 24, she actually comes to the table with more. You see, if you go way back to number six, you see that the, the Nazarite vow that she had um, taken for Samuel, that it had, it had different elements to it. So like you couldn't be around dead people, you couldn't um, take a razor to your head so there was no shaving, there was no drinking of wine, there was lots of different things that were part of this vow. But the vow had a beginning and an end, and in the end, you would come and you would offer certain things. Now, some of those things were, um, like instead of an ephah of flour, it was a third. So she's bringing three times the flour. And, and this, in the Hebrew, it's a little bit hard to translate, but it's either three-year-old bull or three year old bulls and either way um, it's just said to bring a, a, a new bull a young bull and then the skin of wine she brings more wine than expected so she comes to the table bringing more to the end of this vow than uh, she's asked to give but even more so than that she takes it way further 
And instead of giving all that stuff to God and saying, okay, Samuel, let's go back home, she gives Samuel to stay in the tabernacle to serve forever. The vow doesn't end. He's a living sacrifice. She gives her kid to God. I got a pet peeve when I go shopping. I don't know about y'all, but like if I go to the hardware store and I get some tools or some supplies for a project, or maybe if we got to go buy clothes, um, you know, we go get our clothes and we come back and you find out, oh, you know what, I didn't use this for the project or I can't really wear that. What am I thinking? Um, And you go back to the store, you always think to yourself, how is this return going to go? Like, I, you always kind of dread the return because they pull a trick on you sometimes. And you know, you know what I'm saying is you go and you either paid with cash or your credit card, right, or whatever you paid for. And oftentimes you'll get this. Well, we can't put it back on the credit card. We can't give you cash. We can only give you in-store credit. And the frustration that rises in the heart when they say, we can only give you in-store credit, drives me crazy. Drives me, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking to myself, this isn't fair, okay? Because I gave it this way, and you said I could return this. So that means you, I'm going to assume, are going to give it back to me in the exact same way. It ticks you off because it's like, you know what? How self-serving. Like, they got me in, they, they got my money, and now it's self-serving in that in-store credit. I still got to shop there. Like, I still, I came back because I don't want what you have, and you're making me hang out and get more of it. It's frustrating. But here's the thing. In church culture, because we often play the compare game, Church culture, you can come in here and you can say, you know what, I'm going to raise my hand at the end of a prayer, I'm going to pray some prayer, I'm going to start a relationship with God, and it can be legit. It can be like you really received Christ and, and there is salvation that has taken place. But when you look around in terms of living sacrifices, it's only am I doing better than the guy next to me. And so you can actually work your way up the Christian ladder, so to speak, in our minds, doing well because we're comparing ourselves to people. Well, you know, I know a lot of people don't give financially. I give financially, so that's pretty good. And a lot of people, I know they don't serve. I mean, I see how they serve. But I'm serving, so that's pretty good. And so we just compare to one another. Yet God's sitting here saying, I don't care what you are in comparison to the person next to you. I want all of you. I gave you life. Don't look for ways to withhold your own from me. You can't hold on to the former and enjoy the current. It'll always create turmoil. It'll always create turmoil. So you don't have to guess. This is the thing. You don't have to guess about what you've received from God. Because it's a gospel reflective. That what God gives us, we naturally want to give back. And so if you find yourself withholding, there's a good chance there's something you either didn't receive in the beginning, or you just don't realize you received it. And so you're holding back on something that never really could fulfill you to begin with. Let me ask you this before we move on. What would you tell your friends or family that you've received in Christ? What would you tell the people around you if they said, hey, you're a Christian, what does that mean? You've got some, you like, you received something from God, what, what did you actually receive? Your answer to that question will tell you about everything you need to know 
as to how you present yourself and devote yourself back to God. Because if you come out of the gate saying, yeah, I mean, I received forgiveness of my sins, and, and that, that's pretty good, and, and then you kind of stumble around. You don't really know what you received. You don't really know what you got. And it's no wonder why you're hesitating to give all of your life to God. But if you get it, if you're like, you know what? I, got, I, I was dead and I traded it in. It was an exchange. I traded it in for eternal life that starts right now. Because Jesus says, this is eternal life that they know the Father. And if you know the Father right now, you're living eternally. This isn't just a heaven thing. Like if you get that, you know what? I, I came to the table dead and broken and jacked up and messed up and I didn't have anything to give to God that was of value and he gave me freely a brand new identity. He gave me a brand new family. He gave me a new residence. He gave me life. I was literally dead spiritually. He gave me life. He gave me the forgiveness of sins. He gave me value. He gave me purpose. He gave me fill in the blank. Someone comes out of the gate telling me that stuff, there's probably a decent shot they're turning around and striving to give their lives back as a living sacrifice because they realize they had nothing before and now they have everything and it is more than enough. And when you sit in that kind of grace, you always give more back than what the world would expect. And that's your entire life. The world would say, man, going to church once a week, that's probably pretty good for being religious. And God's saying, I don't care what the religious people think. I gave you life. Give yours back to me. Verse 25. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. So that's the priest. Remember the priest that thought Hannah was drunk years earlier. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. It's like you see someone who is part of a God story from five years back, and you're like, dude, remember when we were on that mission trip together, and God showed up, and it was crazy, but I haven't really talked to you since then? Like, we got that in common. That's amazing. And she's having that connection with Eli a little bit. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Next thing we see, we give what we get. We give what we get. And we already talked about this a little bit, but I, I want to I show you something very important here in verse 27 and 28. Here, here's why this is so incredibly important. There's a Hebrew word, sha'al. Okay, it's a root word, and out of it comes several different things. So um, the, the name Samuel, uh, the name Saul, both of those names come out of this word. But it is basically... That's where it gets a little complicated. It, it, it means to ask and to be given. So here's why it's important. Because it's actually said, this root word is said four times in verse 27 and 28. And so verse 27 is what God did. And then verse 28 is what Hannah is doing in response. So prayed, petition, root word, sha'al, lint, and lint. Root word, shawl. So four times it's said, and yet those four words are very distinct. Very distinct. Now, here's why it's important. Because 
the fact that even though we translate them just a little bit different in the context, the fact that it's the same word for all four, and this verse 27 is God's response, and this verse 28 is Hannah's response, shows that Hannah's response to receiving this blessing, her response is identical to what God did for her. Not, hey, God responded and gave me something good, and I gave like 40% back to him. But identical. So in Hannah's mind, She's saying, this is 100%, 100% an answer to prayer. Like this boy, this is 100% from God. So like I asked for this thing, I asked for this little guy, and God gave it back to me. And so I'm going to give it back. I'm going to give it back. There's no question whether I give Samuel back. We look at it from the outside and say, dang, girl, you went overboard. Like did you really have to give him for life? I mean, that was your only kid, right? She went on to have several more. But she's saying, it's a no-brainer. When God gives, you give back the same thing. That's what happens when you're blown away by his amazing grace. This is why, I say it once and I'll say it a million times, this is why it's incredibly crucial for Christians, Christians who are saved, right? They, they have the Holy Spirit. They're seeking to follow Christ. This is why we don't just come to church and say, you know what, Pastor, give me some of that good stuff about Christian living. And I heard the gospel message, let's go on to Christian living. This is why guys like me will put my arm around the church and say, the gospel message is Christian living. You don't graduate. And this is why it's crucial that you and I remind ourselves or preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Because you've got to remember what has been given in order to be the living sacrifice and give in return. The more you separate yourself from the gospel as simply being something you heard one day and it's good and you want other people to hear it, but like, I don't necessarily need it today, the more distorted your mind is as to what it looks like to actually live for God. But when you live in the daily reality of he gave everything more than enough, I couldn't earn it. It is mind-blowing, and it is crazy, and it is mine because he just said, here, I love you. I'm going to die for you. Like, when you live in that reality, you don't need a pastor to tell you, hey, what does it look like to live as a living sacrifice? You ju it just is. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just giving myself. There's nothing I have financially. My kid, it, there's nothing that I'm going to hold back right now. Although there may be temptings at time to do so. It's like this. Sarah and I, we've been married for seven years now. And as you guys know, of course, we have little Silas and he's two years old. So we got pregnant a um, little over four years into our marriage. But one of the themes of our marriage has been infertility. And, and so we got married. We didn't have a clue because we weren't trying to have babies prior to marriage, right? We didn't have a clue coming into it that we were going to struggle with that. And four years passed by, no babies. And it became a hot-button topic in the Booth household because we felt like God was saying, this is a good desire. You should, you should keep this conversation going. And, and so we really prepared ourselves mentally in asking God, what do you want us to do? And do you want us, when we're in Utah, to go see a fertility doctor to get some advice, maybe take some medicine? What, what do you want us to do? And he was asking us to go through these steps, and we were really having to put our faith in him, not knowing what this was going to mean. But we prepared big time for the huge financial burden. If anyone in here has ever messed with any kind of infertility, it costs a lot of money. 
It is not cheap, and insurance generally doesn't cover it. So this is, you're on your own on this one. So we geared up for this financial burden. We geared up for the fact that uh, most doctors are going to tell you, regardless of your situation, this could take many, many months, maybe even years. Um, so the emotional highs and lows, like every, every month, it's just an up and down. And physically, certainly for your wife, um, it, it's going to be exhausting. And by God's grace, month one, we got pregnant. And it was exciting, and it was awesome, and, and we were thrilled. And Silas grows a little bit, and now we're thinking, man, is God laying it on our heart to influence another little, little baby for Jesus? And so we've gone back into that world, and we really, I'll be honest, even though I think we've handled it well, we haven't, um, we, I'll speak for myself, probably was not mentally geared up to start walking down this path that I had thought to myself, man, that was a few years ago, but now, hey, if it happened month one back then, I'm probably pretty good, right? And month one goes by, and month two, and month three, and you feel the financial exhaustion, because you're like, are we really going to do this? Are we really going to take the little we have and then just watch that go down? The emotional exhaustion. Because you're thinking, should we even have hope? What's of God? Like, do we even, what, how do you feel about this? And it's up and it's down. And it's maybe and then it's no. It's, it's not been pleasant around our house the last few months in regards to this topic. Now, God's grace, he's been good and he's helped us to walk through it. But right now, it doesn't feel like there's much of an end. And I say all that to say this. Every time we have this conversation, and it happens a lot, we go through all kinds of emotions, but the conversation usually always ends this way. As we realize, sitting probably in the next room is a little boy we've been praying for. That the potential of a gift is amazing, but God's already given us one. And, and so we find ourselves, by the end of every conversation, starting to get this smile on our face as we realize he's already given us what we thought we were lacking. And a potential is great, but like he, he gave us a baby. And even outside of all that, we have all we need in Christ, and we get that. But each conversation ends with us wanting to devote Silas and ourselves as his parents to the Lord more and more and more. You see, we found ourselves dwelling on what we lack, and then right in front of our eyes, God showed, here's what you have. Here's what you got. And it's like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's what it's like for each one of us each day when we're stressed, when we feel like we're lacking emotionally, maybe lacking spiritually. And God reminds us when we remind ourselves of the gospel each day, he reminds ourselves, oh yeah, I got everything I need in Jesus. I got everything I need. I don't know what I was downtrodden about, but I got, I got everything I need in Jesus. For the sake of your Christian walk, one of the most important decisions you're ever going to ask yourself, and hopefully on a regular basis, is Jesus enough? And if you answer yes, then he's worthy of being answered yes. It's going to change the way you feel about everything you think you're lacking. Because you've got all you need in Christ. So let's get practical a second. 
what, what are you holding back? Okay? I've asked you that a couple times now. But why are you actually holding it back? You say, well, I got kids, and I know they were from God, but like, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm really trusting God with my kids right now. Whether you're empty nesters or you got them in the house, whatever the case is. Or maybe your retirement. Yeah, I got retirement, but I don't know if I'm really like devoting that retirement to God. It could be it could be a wide variety of things. There's several things that usually make us lack trust. Number one is we don't really believe it came from God. Like that's cliche in our mind. Like, yeah, I would say, of course, I got this job because God gave me this job, or I got these kids because God gave me, or I got this because God gave it to me. But like deep down, we don't really register. Like he, no, he gave it to you. Like it would not happen if the world just kept spinning and you didn't have a relationship with God. God gave it to you out of his grace. Everything good came from his grace. Or number two, for those of us who are control freaks, we have a good gift that God has given, uh, and we struggle because we think, what if? Like, if I, if I actually trust God with my kids, and I'm not in control anymore, what happens if he wants to do something crazy, like send them to Africa to be missionaries? What happens? Or three, even worse, we find out that they're idols, because the answer to, is Jesus enough, is maybe no for some of us. And so that thing is something we can't give to God, because it is our God. And so a couple things have to happen. You say, how do I actually devote myself to God? How do I devote these things to my God? Number one is when Jesus is enough, you've got to have a healthy disconnect, right? I love Tara. She's wonderful. She's amazing. Man, I'm so excited to be married for with her, <laughs> for married with her for the rest of our life. It's great. It's wonderful. But she's not Jesus. She never will be Jesus, and she can't be ahead of Jesus. And I pray that she feels the same way about me. There's got to be a healthy disconnect to where we don't find our value and identity and purpose wrapped up in the things God has given. That gifts don't become curses. And number two, you've got to be intentional about actually devoting it to God. So for some of us, that just means that our prayers shift. For example, let's take the example of children. You say, how do I actually devote my children to God? Isn't that something that, like, that only they can do? Well, here, here's the thing. Your prayer life can shift from, God, help them to be obedient to me, or help them to just get it, or help them to, those might be good, but they shift a little bit to, God, how can my kids expand your kingdom? How can I train them today and raise them in a way that isn't just about our own enjoyment, but your kingdom expansion? Say, God gave me a job, how do I devote my job back to God? You're, 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 you're prayers change, and they might even be good prayers, like, God, thank you for this job. I thank you every day for it, to, God, I know you didn't give this job to me just so I can get a paycheck. How can your kingdom be expanded through my job today? You take all of the things that you're struggling with. God, I've, I've thanked you financially because you've given, us, you've given me enough this month to pay my bills. That's good prayer. But it shifts into, thank you for what you've given me, but God, even if you've given me a nickel, God, show me how that nickel can expand your kingdom. It's providing for mine, but God, I want it to expand yours. There's got to be a shift. There's got to be a shift. Now, Hannah prays a prayer that we're going to close out with. 
We're going to stop a couple places in it, but we're going to see how Hannah, now, after praying years earlier for this baby, she has a completely different perspective, and this is how she devotes Samuel back to God. This is the response of grace for Samuel. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Horn, you're going to see that here, and you're going to see that at the very end of this prayer. So it's kind of a theme that caps both of it. Essentially, this is what it's meaning, is you're my strength. So for an animal, horn is the strength, it's the power. Hebrew, the word there for horn, um, associates it directly with authority and power. And so basically she's saying, my strength is increased in Jesus. My power is increased in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. Besides you, there is no rock like our God. First thing we see is that we, if we're going to respond in grace to grace, is we delight in the Lord. We delight in the Lord. Hannah's prayer here, just for those of you who are connecting dots, Hannah's prayer is reflected uh, in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1 by Mary's prayer. So her being um, this young single gal is given this baby, Jesus, and she prays essentially the same prayer. It's called the Magnificat, and it is almost a direct resemblance of this prayer. Two women who see they have been favored by God, and they just, uh, they just adore him. So this is her time of just being in awe of God, just being blown away, just being like, you know what? I'm coming to the table, and I could slam Panana because she's mean, and she, she says mean things to me all the time. Or I could talk about how hard it is to give Samuel to you, or I could tell you about my reservations, but I'm not. I'm coming to the table, and here's how it starts. God, you are amazing. That's my response. You are awesome. And she sits in that. We're analyzing Hannah, but it feels weird. Weddings are weird. I hope all of you that are maybe going to get married in the future, I, I would love to do your wedding, but weddings are, weddings are weddings. Here's one weird thing about the weddings. is we always tell them in rehearsal, we walk through how it's all going, and when the bride starts coming down, we tell the groomsmen and anyone on stage, we say, all eyes on the bride. Everyone in the crowd, they all stand and they turn to her. You want to know what you're supposed to be doing during that time? You just stare at her. That's your job. And people do. But I can tell you from someone seeing my wife come down the aisle, but also seeing the way that young couples as they're walking down the aisle look at each other, that girl, although she might have come in with insecurities, she might have come in thinking, oh, this is weird to have people staring at me. You can tell in their eyes more times than not how quickly they just stare back at their groom and they connect and they meet. It's like, well, there's a lot of people in this room, but <laughs> they don't know it anymore because they're consumed with love for one another. And so you see them lock eyes and you see them walk down and you think, isn't this kind of crazy? She's been thinking about how this is going to feel. She's been thinking about how she's going to respond in the moment. 
She's thinking about how many people in this room for so long, and now in the moment, all she cares about is being locked eye to eye, heart to heart with that groom, and vice versa. And you think that's the way it should be. And so we're watching Hannah saying, well, how are you going to do this, girl? You're in the moment. How are you going to respond? And she's saying, I'm the bride of Christ. I'm locked eye to eye with him. I'm in love with him. And I don't care who's watching. It just is what it is. And she adores him. She adores him. You don't have to convince brides to be in love with their spouses. It's natural, more times than not. But it's true that you generally won't give your whole life to something you don't absolutely love. Whether it's a job, whether it's your family, whatever it is, if you don't absolutely, if you're not sold out, if you don't absolutely love it, you're going to have a hard time giving everything to it. And when it comes to sacrifice, the difference between dread and joy is love. You can sacrifice and hate it, or you can sacrifice and take pure joy in it. And the only difference in that is do you love what you're sacrificing to? Do you actually, do you absolutely love what you're sacrificing to? I love my wife for two reasons. Number one, I love her for who she is, but I love her for what she does as well. I love her for just playing out who she is, uh, but I love her for the way that she loves me. And when it comes to God, it's similar. We love him because of what he's done for us, but we just love him because he's worthy to be loved. This is where we get practical. This is where Christian meditation Again, immersing yourself in the gospel on a regular basis, reminding yourselves of the truths of Christ is so crucial because if you find yourself saying, I I don't know that I love God. I can't make you love him, but you're not going to give yourself to something you don't absolutely love. And so you've got to spend time with him. You've got to find your heart breaking and, and falling in love with him. It's been said by Richard Foster, who wrote the book Celebration of Discipline. He's an old Quaker, and he said, um, the difference between Eastern religious meditation and Christian meditation is Eastern Eastern meditation seeks to empty the mind, but Christian meditation seeks to fill the mind with Christ. And that's what it is. You meditate on the joys of Christ so much that you can't help but to come out on the other end of this absolutely in love. You know what it's like to fall in love with somebody. You can't stop thinking about them. You just chew it up. You meditate on your last encounter, on what they're doing, what they've done, who they are, what you don't even know about them. You give them the benefit of the doubt. You just fall in love. And it's no different than with Christ. Let me ask you, do you adore God? For men, maybe you're like, "Ah, I don't know about all that. Do you enjoy God? Do you just enjoy him for who he is? It's hard to sacrifice for someone you don't really enjoy being around. You say, I I respect him. Do you enjoy him? If you don't enjoy him, you probably probably don't love him. Verse 3, talk no more 
so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Sheol is an old Hebrew word that just means the underworld. Their concept of heaven and hell was developing throughout the Old Testament. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. When you devote yourself back to God, you got to know he's just. Here's what I'll mention about this. There's themes throughout all of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, that those who humbly seek God, like David and Samuel, they have favor in the eyes of the Lord. But those who are pride and arrogant, like Eli, sons, which we're going to read about next week, and, and Saul, that they get crushed. And I'm going to say this, when it comes to devoting yourself to God, if you get caught up in unholy motivations of what am I going to get out of this, you're going to find yourself incredibly broken. Because the truth is, you might come in pure and holy and ready to go, and he might make you suffer and have sorrow all the days of your life. But he's still just. And someone who comes in half-heartedly to God might be blessed in many ways. And you say, that doesn't make sense. But God is still just. And he's going to judge, and you've got to trust. And if you come to the table thinking, well, this is about what I'm going to get through the experience of devoting myself to God compared to God already gave me all I need in Christ Jesus 2,000 years ago. He gave me all I need. You're going to be sorely disappointed because God's not a slot machine, and he can't be played that way. You've got to come to the table and say, you know what, God? I don't know what this means for me to actually devote myself. I don't, it might cost me more than I ever realized, but I'm not in it for what I gain or for what I lose. You're just worthy, and I'm giving myself to you. It's got to be the heart. And last but not least, one last verse. Then Elkanah, so this is after the prayer, Hannah's husband, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Last but not least, longevity is the goal. So after all of this, they still got to actually follow through. Again, it's lip service until they leave the boy. This vow was over. Samuel could have come home with his mom and dad. And they left him there forever. We're going to find out how jacked up Eli the priest, his sons are next week, and how they were doing things they shouldn't have done with the women who served in the tabernacle. There were, there were women there. Hannah's got to know some of the craziness that's going on, thinking, I love this boy. I raised him for three years. He's this amazing gift, but I'm so overwhelmed by the gift giver that I'm going to give him over. And these ladies who are at the tabernacle are probably going to raise him. And Eli, who got horrible judgment, he thought I was drunk five years ago when I was praying, 
He's going to be working with him. I'm going to trust these people with my boy. Most of us in this room tonight have come to God at different times and said, God, I'm giving all of myself to you. And we see short term, a lot of times it happens. But longevity is the goal. They don't come back and pick Samuel up. This isn't a one-week tabernacle church camp. They gave him for life. What do you have that you've given God? You've said, here, it's at the altar, but you find yourself picking it back up. Better question, if you want to know the answer to that, is what are you stressed about this week? You probably picked it back up. The only way you're going to find yourself being someone that gives to God on a regular basis all of your life, knowing that we're imperfect as humans, but the Spirit of God's power in us wants and will equip us to devote ourselves to Him. The only way is if you immerse yourself. If you want to be a grace giver, you've got to be immersed in God's grace because you've got no other source of strength but to remember the ultimate sacrifice. And there's, there's rarely someone who gives to a, a financial cause, for instance, who doesn't uh, say in their heart and many times verbally something like this. Well, I gave because it's a worthy cause. And on the judgment day, regardless of how we live this life, but if we fully devote ourselves to him on judgment day, he's going to look at us, he's going to affirm, well done, good and faithful servant. I am worthy. You got no greater worthy cause than him. Let me say this as a close out. Y'all know my story enough and I'll sum it up in a minute and a half. I sat in church worship services for four years hearing the gospel over and over and over. And I gave back to God and saw life change in direct correlation to what I had actually received. I prayed prayers. I walked down the aisle a couple times. I thought things were legitimately going to change. I understood the message in my mind. But over a four-year period, I did not see much change. I had a little bit of behavior modification, but it was, again, directly correlated to the lack of what I'd actually received from God. And then on that day, in April of 2007, when I'm leaving the Westbrook campus in Hutchinson, Kansas, and I'm driving on 17th and Adams, and I'm at that stoplight, and I'd heard the gospel for the gazillionth time, and it hit me like a ton of bricks as a young single dude who doesn't really get much in life, but like there in that moment, I got it. He died for me. I need him. He died for me. I can trust him. And I didn't pray a prayer that day, but I gave my life to him. And I didn't need anybody to convince me to devote myself to him. Have I lived up perfect? Of course not. None of us have. But I knew that day I received something much greater than I had in the previous four years. And I knew that day my response was to give something much greater than I had given in those last four years. And 
everything changed. Everything changed. Don't underestimate the power of what we're saying tonight. If you're here and you're like, I don't know that I've really received all that you're talking about. There is grace and mercy to be had. And you can have it. God wants you to have it. Let's pray.